Hello and welcome back to the Agents of Change and Environmental Justice podcast, a partnership between Environmental Health News and Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. I'm Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the editor of Agents of Change. Welcome to May. I can't believe it's May already. Where is the time going? I hope you're all enjoying spring. I know that I am very ready to start getting some plants and seeds in the ground down at the farm, but we have to wait another month, so I will be patient. A friendly reminder to subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcast. We are here every two weeks, and we are bringing you something you simply won't find anywhere else, the voices of the next generation of environmental justice leaders. So join us and be part of our fun movement. Today I am talking to Jewel Jones and Tina Johnson, both members of We Act for Environmental Justice. We talk about what it means to be a member of WE ACT, how the organization uplifts community members and arms them to fight for justice, and some victories they've seen along the way. Enjoy. All right, today I am talking to Jewel Jones and Tina Johnson, both members of We Act for Environmental Justice. Tina, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Brian. How are you? (laughs) I am doing excellent. And Jewel, how are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you. Great. And I'd like to put uh, listeners, uh, give them some context. So I I think you're both in New York City, but uh, can you confirm that? Where are you coming at us from today? You go, Jill. Yes. So, yes, I am in East Harlem. Uh, I've been here for about uh, 20 some odd years, but born and raised in New York City. Excellent. And like Jewel, I was born and raised in New York City and I live in West Harlem um, in the bottom of Morningside Heights or the beginning of Manhattanville, depending on who you talk to. And I grew up in NYCHA, and I still live there. So maybe we can get started with, uh, we are, I believe most of our listeners are familiar with WE ACT because we are such big fans of the work that that organization is doing. But maybe you could both tell me briefly how you got started with WE ACT. Um, Jewel, would you get us started? Sure. So um, some years ago, um, I was on the community advisory board. It's called a cab at Metropolitan Hospital, uh, part of Health and Hospitals. And um, across the street from the hospital in this area, there's also residential as well. There's a sanitation garage, DSNY sanitation garage. Um, I, um, the cab and others over them over decades have been trying to rid the neighborhood of that sanitation garage because over the years, it's it's dilapidated. Um, it cannot even house the sanitation trucks. Um, it should it should be torn down. It's not operable. It's it's a it's a blight on the neighborhood, and it is a, directly across from a hospital and other residential buildings, as well as a school. So when I was the on the community advisory board, and other other entities have been involved with trying to rid the neighborhood of that garage. Um, we 
someone mentioned the name of a person of the late Cecil Corbin Mark, and they said, you should reach out to WEAC and speak with Cecil about this. So I was introduced to WEAC through that. Um, he provided so much guidance in terms of, you know, what to do to try to rid the neighborhood of the garage um, and also just generally about the environment. And, and, and um, so that that was it. Um, and also just like guidance in terms of reaching out to elected officials, other entities like community board or local elected officials. Um, and and the, the thing about the garage is this, that um, it's again, decades it's been there, but you know, there's a comparable uh, garage uh, in Midtown that has all the bells and whistles. And we just said there needs to be equity in terms of that. So if you can build it there, you can build it in East Harlem. And we should be able to, you know, have an environment that's, you know, that's it's clean environment that, uh, you know, we're not smelling the sanitation garage. It's not creating all these other environmental pollutants based on the garage. So that's 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 it. Excellent. And Tina, how about your story? Um, it, it, my story is similar to Jules, but when I listened to Jules' story, she was already ahead of where I was when I joined. So I was having lived in NYCHA my whole life. I began to notice that things were crumbling around me, like in a detrimental way, um, you know, possibly asbestos exposure through construction, definitely mold exposure. And my children had breathing issues. One time the pediatrician came to the house and he was like, you got to do something about this mold. You got to do something. And it was like a years long odyssey. And then I decided I'm going to um, run for the tenant association which I did, and I got elected. But uh, it like when I would bring up the environment <laughs> or I would bring up things that we could do to educate and get the community involved, it became, you know, like treacherous territory and I was being threatened and, you know, it just didn't make any sense. I was like, I live in West Harlem, not Beirut. <laughs> and um, it became a thing like people in my building, don't go over there by yourself. And I'm like, I don't have time for this. But while I was there, We Act was coming, getting on the agenda. And they were inviting people talking about this climate action program that they were going to do. And so at that point, I was like, the reason why I got involved in the TA is environmentally related. And I have a rich background in my family of the environment. I was like, you know what? Let me go to We Act and find out what this is about. And then I just uh, really dug in. And that's how I got to We Act. And once I got to We Act, Cecil was there. Like, I, I can't mention this without talking about Cecil Corbin Mark. And he was a mentor um, on many levels. He was human. And um, he really tried to help us develop and grow, um, not to become experts like the policy people and stuff like that, but to be able to maneuver it and be experts about our conditions and how we see things. And so 
I'll leave it at there. But um, Cecil, I'll start crying, <laughs> was a mm-hmm. huge part of We Act. Huge, huge part. I really like your story, Tina, because I think when we think of the environment, it often people think of uh, birds and butterflies and polar bears and oceans and rivers. And of course, that stuff is all very important. But it's also our house. It's our home. It's where our children sleep. Uh, and, and to start kind of the journey to thinking about the environment there in a very personal, very personal environment, I think is is really powerful. So we have a lot of academics on this show, as I was telling you before we got started, which can be good and it can be bad sometimes. But we hear a lot of academic definitions of environmental justice and other terms. But specific, specifically thinking about environmental justice, I want to know what that what that term and what does true environmental justice mean to the two of you, having done this work now for a while? Okay, I'll go for it. So for me, you know, it, it's, 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 it's looking at um, the environment, right? And I'm just going to use these two words, the environment and justice. So justice is, to me, it's like, it's like um, righting a wrong. And when we talk about the environment, so when I say live in East Harlem, I'm a block away from the sanitation garage. So I pass that garage every single day on my way to work and then in and around the neighborhood. So I'm, I'm affected by the garage. And um, so when we talk about environmental justice and I can, and if I see that other areas of the city, you know, they're being afforded resources and services and there's a, you know, there's a, you know, comparable sanitation garage that was built in Midtown with all the bells and whistles. And, and why can't that happen in East Harlem? So you have to look at, you know, where is there equity involved in terms of uh, resources? Um, and we're talking about underserved and marginalized communities that, you know, you know, bear the brunt of these injustices. So, you know, for me, that that's what it boils down to is just righting a wrong. And, uh, you know, and, and in East Harlem, people, I have to, it's like known for uh, high asthma rates, um, you know, and others, respiratory issues. So, you know, I, I live here and I and I I'm a uh, you know, I, I'm affected by this. So, you know, I, I must speak out <laughs> and mm-hmm. I will and I always will. <laughs> I feel that way plus. I feel that um, environmental justice means earth justice. And if we don't think about earth justice, then we're just continuing to do what we've done and uh, strengthen artificial systems to adjust what should be done, basically. So I feel that, you know, like, Without that idea, you can't really connect climate to environment to, you know, there it's all together. It's all one coin, different sides, or it's the same ball. But um, I think environmental justice to me is equal access to comprehensive health care resources, et cetera, um, economies. And equal access to food as medicine. Like I've, I've seen a lot of articles recently about our doctors going to be able to prescribe food to their patients to help them with different conditions. Like why does that have to be controlled by a healthcare company? So I, I believe, you know, like equal access to that and, um, central, more central is like control and input into decision-making 
around a comprehensive environment. So that means that um, the secret has to be let out the bag and we have to build that language or that way of communication between academia and the regular everyday citizen. So environmental justice to me, like in a concrete way, would be uh, a civil, uh, civics soft space in every community where people can go and learn stuff on their own time, not comprehensive it in a short meeting, though, even though that's very important, and then write a, a letter, you know, like a form letter. How does this affect you in your real life? And, you know, like, what does it mean it's not explored and it's not set up in a way where people who work, um, low-income people, people in environmental justice communities are able to get the information that they need. It's just somebody like pulling their coattail or them pulling somebody's coattail, but it's never comprehensive. Like, like I'll give you an example, then I'll shut up. Lead. It's, it's so great that, um, you know, they were able to target letting children and take it as far as it has. But what about the parents? What about the adults? In NYCHA, in this apartment, I've gotten um, four contractors, two say no lead, two say lead. But now my children are grown and I'm grown. So where do we go? Who do we go to? Nobody cares about that. You know, I'm not trying to break down like the end of the Roman Empire. <laughs> I want to live. <laughs> so I'm just saying, like, you know, we don't think about these things in a chain connected to each other. And sometimes if we did do that, environmental justice would um, be a cheaper option and a more comprehensive foundation. That's it. Yeah, that's that's an excellent point. And you both speak to, I, I think, the importance of we act when you have folks who are just trying to work, get their kids to school, get food on the table and make sure everybody's mm -hmm. healthy. They don't have time to look through the, the docket on the next policy and the next building permit. Uh, and I think that's why we act is so important to bridge that gap and, and give people the resources um, to have a voice in these, in these matters. Um, and I want to talk about specifically about some of the work that WEAC does. But before we get to that, and maybe maybe you both touched on this a little bit, but were either of you involved in environmental or environmental justice work prior to working with WEAC? Atina, maybe you could start. I, I don't, I'm trying to think, you know, like if I did more than march in a college rally, but when I was at City College, I did like, um, I put together a rally. I was in charge of a rally protesting against Colin Powell when he received his honorary degree at graduation because of the Gulf War. And at that time, I definitely was an environmentalist. I wasn't in an organization because I was trying to talk to all the political people about the importance of trees and I would regularly get laughed at, sometimes cursed out, you know. Um, but even at that time, you know, like I was trying to tease uh, uh, the idea of the two being linked. Tease the idea of the two being linked and being very important to us in the community. So, 
But we asked my first, you know, like uh, I jumped in on the deep end. And, and for me, um, so when I was part of the uh, Community Advisory Board at Metropolitan Hospital, and we were talking about this garage and, you know, and, and the effects of, of, of it being in the neighborhood, that was my introduction in terms of environmental justice, because we're looking at, like I said, um, it's been there for like decades. People prior to me, organizations prior to me were involved with trying to uh, rid the neighborhood of the garage. So and then and then we then we looked, you know, we did a lot of research in terms of, um, you know, in terms of like who owns the garage, you know, what was there before the garage, uh, you know, the effects of the garage being there. So that was my introduction in terms of environmental justice. And again, I, I walk past there and every day. And of course, you were working for in, in healthcare, which is just intrinsically tied to all of these to all of these issues when it comes to things we're exposed to. So, Jules, sticking with you, um, and maybe I don't know if you're both involved in this or, or or not, but I was really interested in the climate justice working group that We Act has. So, I was wondering if you two can talk about that working group. What does that group work on? What roles do members like yourselves play in that? So, yes, I am on the climate justice working group. Um, and Annie is the person that runs that. Um, you know, it's over the years, you know, there's just so many things. I think more recently we're talking about, um, well, we've talked about emergency preparedness um, in terms of um, making sure that the neighborhood is aware of, of flooding. I'm, I'm on, uh, on First Avenue, so East River's right there, Superstorm Sandy, the effects of that. So, and, and being prepared, um, most recently we talked about, um, you know, uh, in the home, you know, get rid of gas stoves, you know, electric. And so the, the bottom line is that they just, you know, they, they bring so many of these issues to the forefront and then tell us, okay, go out there and, and advocate, uh, you know, go to your elected officials, go down to city hall. I've testified at city hall for, on, and on behalf of WEAC, I've been to Albany on, on behalf of WEAC. I've been to Washington on behalf of WEAC. So, and my, my, you know, I, I would advocate for we act in general, but also just for my personal issues and concerns as well. Okay. Um, I think that I, um, can you ask the question again? Sure. Yeah. Sure. So I was asking about the climate justice working group and I didn't know Tina, if you were involved in that too. And if so, what's your, what's your role? What are some things that you've worked on? Well, I have recently um, started to attend the meetings again. I um, stopped attending a lot of meetings and I wasn't on the planning committee. I'm on it now because I was um, I was appointed by the city council to the New York City Environmental um, Environmental Justice Advisory Board. And um we act was a really big part of that, but it was um, a recognition of all the work that I had done at We Act to develop the climate action plan and also the Northern Manhattan Climate Action Plan and um, participation in the development of the planning committee, which Jewel was also a part of. And we put together the bylaws and, you know, like, set up that structure with other members, how people were going to vote um, with the WEAC staff. 
And that's still going on. So she didn't mention that, but that's like something major. And um, climate was always one of my, um, my first love because I told you back in the day in college, here I was talking about trees and it has a lot to do with like the way I was raised, however you want to interpret that culture, but I was raised to mark time by the seasons and um, notice specific things that were going on. And as I got older, it became a way to um, mark time in a, in a pleasant way, things to look forward to. And I noticed the change between the time when I was younger and the time when my kids were younger. I was like, oh, you guys, you're, you're, you're wimps. When it was hot and there was a heat wave, you know, Aunt Dina and I used to sleep on the tile floor and <laughs> grandma didn't let us have air conditioner because she didn't believe in it. And then I participated in um, a program at We Act with IC Climate and they put sensors inside NYCHA apartments and different people's apartments to test the indoor temperature. And my kids were suffering and I just, it just brings it home to like on a really basic level, but even also like the pigeons disappeared and there started to be less pigeons. Like even during the pandemic, it's like they knew, oh, you guys are sick <laughs> and they took <laughs> off somewhere. But, you know, like now I see them starting to come back again, but not in the same numbers. So it's just, I've always been like that. I'll mention these things to people and they'll go, ew, pigeons, I hope they kill them all. But I still try to inject it at church and in regular life because we have to bring like some kind of sanity to this. And it sounds like we act is working on the climate front, not only on potential adaptation to increasing floods and problems, but on the front end and causes, uh, Julie, you mentioned um, gas stoves and maybe some energy use and things like that. Is that is that correct? Is it kind of working on both ends of the issue? Oh, I would say definitely. Um, you know, <laughs> more recently in terms of the you know gas stoves and le- and moving and from that to electric, and then you know the city has their own you know policies, long term policies in, in place as well in terms of um, um, gas stoves in newer buildings. And replacing them with electric, so um, so that's that's like that's right at the forefront right now. But I did want to mention um, when Tina was speaking, um, one of the big things they they did over the years was like look at cooling centers. Mm-hmm. So um, whether uh, and these are just libraries, other kind of structures that in the summer these are places where people can go. And the issue was, do people know about these cooling centers right. and there's their signage? So that was a that was a big. Uh, I should probably have mentioned that in terms of the climate justice working group. That was a major project that we worked on over like the past couple of years. We went out, people went out to different identified cooling centers and went in, asked about, you know, asked people, "Are you here because of this is this is a cooling center?" And asked staff, "Do you know um, what might be needed for people that come into the cooling center?" And do you? Do you I mean, so things like that. So that was a, a big project. Is why I just want to mention that as well. Sure. And, and when it comes and to this, also, sorry, oh, go ahead. I just wanted to add, because uh, June brought this to mind, it's like a public health um, focus 
on the things that we face in our community. So, you know, it's just an invaluable way of looking at it that we access because all these different things are in different areas, but they're focusing on the health of the community and giving the community a chance to get involved in developing the health of their community. And that leads me really well into my next question. So I think we act is known for involving community in, in a very empowering and progressive way. Um, can you two talk about what sets we act apart when it comes to involving uh, community members on the ground and valuing their ideas and making them feel heard? You know, how does the organization do that and how does it do it well? Maybe Tina, can you start? Well, they really put a lot of time and energy into thinking about how they present things. And um, so, the, so the, the benefit of that, the value of that is that they're able to put information out to the community as well as have that upper level conversation and sometimes, you know, like be able to break it down into digestible parts so that people are like, oh, that sounds really bad, but how does that affect me? Like they don't even have to go in that direction because as it's being presented, they might even be learning a little bit about the conversation between the experts and we act, or they'll be explaining the results of, I don't know, votes or um, questions that they ask us. It's not like they're just asking the members to give feedback about X, Y, Z, and we don't ever hear about it. So they close that loop, but they close the loop in a way that allows the community to be a part of the loop. And, you know, and they value their members. <laughs> so that, that's yeah. very important to, um, to, to we act. Um, they, they put such value on the membership. And as Tina's saying, like in informing the membership and, 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 and letting them know that you know, there are ways where you can, you know, have your voices heard. You know, I mentioned like testifying down at city hall or going to Albany, but just even at just like just the local level in terms of, and then, you know, in terms of, you know, being informed, I always say, you know, they always talk about, you know, our elected officials and I always, you know, hold them to task as well. You know, uh, you know, uh, we, you know, appoint you, we elect you, you know, kind of like do your jobs. <laughs> um, so, um, and you held that we hold them to, to task really. Um, I, I have no problem knocking on a, I live around the corner from Senator Serrano. He, they moved their office to like so close to me, um, you know, walk over there, knock on the door. So they hold people, you know, accountable. Um, and again, main thing is they, they value members and membership and informing us and, and, and giving us the tools we need to, you know, advance, uh, we ask, you know, priorities and, but also our member driven priorities as well. I like the idea too that I, I noticed this with the organization that a lot of places have uh, okay the experts are talking when the experts are done I use that in quotations when we're done talking we'll tell we'll tell all you what what we learned or whatever where the communities that you're working in those are experts as well I mean you you are experts in your neighborhood in your house in your community um, and so it shouldn't be here are the experts and then here's the communities it's everybody has their own kind of expertise and bringing those all together on equal footing I think is a very um, a very powerful way to run run a community organization like that. So I want to hear about some victories, some wins, some optimism here. So I'm wondering if um, maybe, Julie, you could start. If there's anything, uh, what are some wins that you've been a part of at WEACT? 
Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to go back to the, the sanitation because it actually has been relocated. And, you know, and I, 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 you, I, you know, we act as a part of that. Every, every place I go, every organization that I'm a part of, I, I bring this up. Um, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a part of the NAACP. There's a mid-Manhattan branch. I'm part of that branch. Um, I mentioned the Community Advisory Board at Metropolitan Hospital. I'm also on my community board. So to me, you know, I, I keep that at the, I kept that garage at the forefront. And, you know, we act was, was there at the beginning and they were there when it was like talked about being relocated. It has been relocated. It's now at 128th Street. Um, and remnants still remain. The, the structure is still there, but the trucks are no longer there. And, you know, I can walk and, you know, I'm wearing a mask anyway because of, you know, the pandemic. But I, I wear a mask because I don't want to smell the, the, the odor and, and from the garage itself. So I think that's a big win in terms of uh, the support that we received um, from We Act in terms of relocating that garage elsewhere. And it continues because the garage where it is now, where it has been relocated, you know, it's it's uh, it could be better. It's not an enclosed structure. We're concerned about, you know, um, you know, pollutants and things of that nature with the trucks there. So it's a kind of it's still an ongoing uh, situation, I would say. But I count that as a win. (laughs) Um, I um, double what Jewel said, because in my community, we were overburdened with um, bus depots, uh, the sanitation depot <laughs> used to be on the side of the West Side Highway. And um, we act, or Peggy Shepard and her cohorts of people who got into good trouble helped change that situation. I remember like how it was and how hard it was to breathe, especially in the summertime, how you would smell the diesel fumes. And the neighborhood has been transformed. So... You know, I think that that tells you a lot about um, WEAC's impact, um, even though it was much smaller then. But I want to talk about something that Jewel was involved in as well, I believe. EPIC, Emergency Preparedness Information Kiosk. So out of the Northern Manhattan Climate Action Plan, we identified key areas that the community needed to develop Um, systems in, in case of an extreme weather or condition where we were waiting for the federal government to come to us. And we needed to take into account that there was going to be a core group of people sheltering in place. So how could we set these systems up to prepare the community more? And how could we spread information? So we worked with, um, uh, City As and Thread Collective. And Thread Collective helped us design or, or design for us an emergency preparedness kiosk, which would um, be on a NYCHA campus. NYCHA wouldn't allow us to put rooms in it, so it had to be a statue. So we came up with an idea where there was like um, shelter, where like maybe seniors could go underneath and sit. And then on another side, a bulletin board, you know, like futuristically hoping that um, we could have something electronic that people could come to and also that it would serve as um, a warning system. So people could look out their window and see, oh, um, it's red. 
the air quality is bad or whatever. So there was a group of us at WEAC that worked on this project and it, um, the Kresge money <laughs> ran out from the um, foundation to do the Northern Manhattan Climate Work follow-up. And so uh, we tried to put it on, well, we put it on participatory budgeting and we tried to get money through participatory budgeting to keep it going. But um, we didn't get shows and, you know, like people, people didn't understand what the value of it was. But um, you see how that hit so many different areas um, related to the health of, you know, the community, public health, um, just a lot of different things that would strengthen the community. So I um, was very, very proud of that. And also um, because of Cecil, I was one of the members that got a chance to be really involved with Kresge, attending convenings and different things like that. And I got a lot of exposure to new ideas, people across the country. Um, it's just, you know, like we act as giving us exposure to policy, how it's developed, um, the mechanism, you know, like to spread it around. Not, not only all of that, but how to have the meeting, <laughs> how to speak to people, um, how to conduct ourselves. And it's just, where else would we get that? Where else would we get that? And, you know, they're on a shoestring budget. So many members come there like, oh, I think we should be working on this. I think we should be doing this. I think members should be going to Egypt or blah, 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 blah. But all that costs money. But look at how much they're getting done with us, you know, like, so that transparency and that exposure is invaluable. And going back to your other question, that would be one of the main things I would say to other organizations if they wanted to uh, repeat some of that success. Yeah, let's let's stick on that point for a second. I, we have a lot of researchers on this show who I think are are very good about thinking about doing the research in a way that is not extractive, um, that is working in, in conjunction and in tandem with communities. But what would you two say to other researchers or organizations um, who want to emulate some of this? What could they learn from WEACT when it comes to true community partnerships? Tina, you want to start? I want to say all of the things I mentioned, but I, I also, you know, like all, all of that is, what I'm interested in, what I love, the environment, what I hold dear. But there's another part of me, you know, like a, a shadow side, if you would, that um, lives in NYCHA and doesn't really get to enjoy the fruits of my labor. So it's hard for me to address a question like that. And it's, it's even hard, um, you know, like speaking to my neighbors or different people that I'm trying to get involved in. It's, it's putting like so much pressure on the communication and the conversation. And um, when you're involved in efforts like this, everybody wants you to talk to people and bring new people in. So I don't know how to answer that. 
Well, I, I think that's an answer in itself that this work is it makes it makes people tired. <laughs> Even if things are done in a way that is equitable and good, it's a drain on people, and we need to respect and, and understand that. Um, Jewel, did and you have anything to add? Isolating. And isolating, yes, a hundred percent. And having having worked on environmental uh, journalism for a while, I can say these issues um, they weigh on you. I mean, these are a lot of these when you're talking about kids with asthma uh, and people dealing with natural disasters and so on and so forth. It's um, it's heavy work. It can be emotionally heavy. Um, Jewel, did you have anything to add to that? I do. And one of my other hats I wear, I was part of a community research academy, um, and I'm still a part of that because they that 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 became a cab, a community advisory board after I graduated. And, you know, these are researchers. And just generally speaking, even like as part of my community board, when we talk about, you know, uh, local uh, medical facilities or hospitals and researchers. And I, I'm going to speak generally is that one of the things that, that, you know, that comes across to me is that, you know, uh, they have a good idea in terms of, you know, um, uh, addressing a, a health concern in a neighborhood. And one of the things is that, you know, the people in the neighborhood <laughs> should be at the table <laughs> with the researchers. And it's not a matter of, you know, you think, you think what you're your research project might be over someone's head, but then you need to simplify it for the for the for the community. But but the community needs to be there because you come with this idea. It could be a great idea in terms of uh, you know of uh, providing for a health need, but then you come, you do the research, but then you leave, and then you know what what resulted from that. So I think like follow up. Uh, in terms of, you know, okay, we plan to do this research, it's going to benefit the community, and then we're going to go back to, and I'm not trying to be like Idaho or some other part of the the country and and then we're left with you know well what did they come with did they what did they do is there some follow-up and you know that type of thing so be I would say be mindful of that and really back to my original point is have the community at the table and don't think what you're discussing is going to go over someone's head your job is to simplify it for the for the community and and tell us what the benefit of that is and and why we should support you so I'm not trying to be but I I, I have really, I've been a part of this for a little bit as well so I, I had to say that. Sorry. No, that's you, no, you, you do. You do not need to apologize. That's an excellent point. I was just ha- I just had a researcher on the podcast the other day who who said a term I had never heard before called data data sovereignty. Basically, the idea that when a when a researcher comes in and, and does some kind of study or collects data, that the community owns that. That's theirs. You know that now they can use that to advocate for their own health or whatever whatever the data is used for. But um, I thought that was a cool. A cool term, data sovereignty. So we have to end on a positive note. We can't we can't get too down about this work. So I like to ask folks, what are they optimistic about? And this can be specific to your work with We Act or the environment or justice in general. But what makes you feel optimistic, Jewel? Do you want want to get us started? Okay, um, I would say I have to you know mention Peggy as well as so when we talk about Cecil, the late Cecil Corbett Mark, but I have to talk about Peggy, and I'm very optimistic because. You know, um, when Cecil passed, you know, it was a matter of like, you know, how because we I mean, he did so much and he was internationally known. But I'm just watching Peggy and not that Peggy wasn't doing as much, but I'm just watching Peggy at the federal level. Um, There was a recent event that took place and she had all these people from the federal government there talking to the community. So I I just have to make sure I always um, give uh, accolades and the, the highest to Peggy, and then in terms of and her staff, um, uh, 
The staff there is is incredible. Um, they are so supportive. They are so down to earth. It's a diverse staff. Um, so I'm I'm very and I, I I used to tell people when I used to go to WEAC meetings like I don't know 15 years ago. You know, it was it was that small WEAC in a room, and it was just so diverse in terms of the individuals that came to the WEAC meetings. I, I always loved that diversity intergenerationally, culturally, you know, and everything in between. So I, I, I appreciate that. And to this day, I love going to WEAC meetings because there's of the diversity and they're just a very supportive staff and in terms of, 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 of how they operate so, and, and, and reputable and, uh, and, all of, and all of that. So I appreciate that. Excellent. And Tina, what are you optimistic about? I'm optimistic that um, with Peggy's leadership, we're going to accomplish more. Because um, I've I've just been witness, like Jewel. Like, we we act wouldn't exist without Peggy Shepard and some other people that are her contemporaries or a little older. And... um, it just makes me feel very hopeful about the future because I'm following through on something that came before. I'm picking up the thread. I'm trying to carry it as far as I can, <clears throat> spread the knowledge far and wide. And if I was able to, I'd love to set up you know, like different we acts all over. They don't necessarily, it doesn't have to be a brand, but I'm talking about the system. So I, you know, that's what I'm hopeful for. I just try to be hopeful every time I feel the sun on my face and remember what I'm working towards when I breathe in clear air and remember what this is all about. And, you know, like that helps me through the wins and the losses. And the fact that, again, I have not see, I've been doing this for over a decade, but I'm not really seeing the benefit in my indoor environment. I don't blame WEACT for that. But I'm saying, like, you know, um, I'm doing this for a reason. People might not understand, but, you know, like, there's a point A, there's a point B, and a C. So I think. Peggy, through her work from day one, has really highlighted and brought that message to the fore. And um, it just, without it, it would be a different community. And we wouldn't have had Cecil. (laughs) So, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you both so much. This is uh, truly the best part of, of my job is getting to meet folks like you all and talk about you and your work. And it makes me hopeful and it's what gives me optimism. So thank you so much for that. And we'd like to end every show by hearing the last book that people read for fun. So I know you're busy, but I'm hoping you have time to do some fun reading. So Tina, what was the last book you read for fun? I think, okay, it's called Structuralism and Post-Structuralism for Beginners. And I'm trying to find the author's name. It's Samuel something, but it's, um, you know, like there's text, there's pictures. It's such a good book. I would read it again and again. 
um, because there's such valuable information. They talk about um, different phenomena in history, like um, the asylum. <laughs> and when it, when it first started versus like regular society and how there's an invisible conversation that happens between those two. And they follow the conversation all the way through history. And it's just so interesting. And that's the book that I read for fun the last Only on this podcast would a book, the, the fun book, have structuralism in the title, I have to say. But it does sound, it does sound like a fascinating read. I definitely want to check that out. And how about you, Jewel? Well, something similar to, uh, you know, in terms of, oh, so it's called, um, and I re- reread this, um, and it had to do with a, a work-related uh, matter that came up, but Medical Apartheid by Harriet Washington, because, um, you know, another hat that I, I wear is um, there was a, um, a, a statue of, um, of the, uh, anyway, um, there, were, there are things going on in East Harlem, and, um, and there's always things going on in East Harlem, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that book talks about, you know, I think most, most people have read uh, Medical Apartheid and generally just speaking is just making, making just in look in terms of, um, um, I, I guess I'm going to say writing a wrong again uh, or looking at the medical profession um, in terms of, uh, you know, we talk about researchers, we can talk about, you know, how, you know, medical, uh, how things are, are uh, you know, doctors re- or relate to patients and or those that are underserved or marginalized. So it's just a, it's a good resource for anybody, and I recommend the book. Excellent. Well, thank you both so much again for doing this. I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for the work that you're all doing. I think it's uh, it really is cause for optimism um, to see that folks like you are taking time to do this kind of work. So thank you so much for being on the show. All right. That is all for this week, folks. What a couple of inspiring women. I really love the work that WEACT is doing, and I hope you learned something today, and I hope you enjoyed my conversation with both Tina and Jewel. If you enjoyed this podcast and these type of episodes, visit agentsofchangeinej.org, and while you're there, help us out. Click the donate button and support us. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram, and please follow us wherever you get your podcast. Rate, subscribe, review, do all those things. Show us some love so we can keep this going. This podcast was written, recorded, produced, and edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team. Dr. Ami Zoda, Dr. Yoshira ornelas Horn, Dr. Vina Singla, Dr. Max Ong, Dr. Lariah Edwards, Summer Ahmad, and Maria Paula Rubiano. Our music is Now Sun by Poddington Bear. Email our team at agentsofchangeinej at gmail.com and sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the program homepage. Thank you so much for joining us. You could be spending your time anywhere, and I am so grateful that you choose to spend it with us. We'll hope to keep these important conversations on diversity and science and health going. Join me next time when I speak to fellow Dr. Denise Moreno-Ramirez, a postdoctoral research associate at the Center for Toxicology and Mel and Enid Zuckerman College of Public Health at the University of Arizona. Have a great week, folks.